Things can be joyful and be difficult. <laughs> Meeting some of the people who come, some of them are in very sad situations. To be able to serve them is a gift. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with the Reverend Deacon Sandra Jones from Park City. Reverend Jones, thank you for coming in. You're welcome. I really appreciate that you would make time. It's a bit of a drive if you had to come in. But you have a very interesting perspective, which is that you are clergy now, but that's been for about the last three or four years. So you have a whole life outside of that, although it sounds like you were very involved in church along the way. What were your first beginnings of religious awareness? Wow. When I was really young, we belonged to a church, and there was just something about, um, and it could have been just my friends were there too, but the ritual. Mm -hmm. Um, The Episcopal Church is ritual and liturgy. I just found it beautiful. The music, the, the consistency, you knew, and you still do, you know where you are in the service by what is being said. Also marking the times of the year and the various Christian holidays. Yes. And as I um, participated more in the church, recognizing that it, um, it's obvious, which you often don't notice because you get caught up with the vestments that clergy wear. But each season has a color, and each color has its meaning. And so now you, I can just look at a color and and sense and know where I am in the liturgical year. Interesting. It is, and and the liturgical calendar does not match our everyday calendar. The church year starts with Advent, which is usually either the last weekend in November or the first weekend in December. So that's our start of the year, and then we go go through that. So when you were young and you were taken by the music— and the ritual, and the vestments, all of that. At what point did you start to see beyond that to something outside of the earthly realm and make spiritual connections with that? I don't think I can really pinpoint a time, and I've really tried thinking about that. Um, It just seems to have been always something with me. I always felt a connection with God. I could talk with God. And just this sense that uh, there was this being involved in the universe and the world. That it's very hard to pinpoint, but taking that basic idea of this being who is involved and taking it deeper as I explored more, learned more, experienced more, just absolutely made it more awesome, bigger and more exciting to try and experience this presence, this being, at all times in different spaces. You mentioned that you felt you could talk to God. Yes. And I'm wondering if that implies that you thought someone is listening. And I guess the second follow-up is that, did you feel like he was speaking to you in some way? I made a presumption there (laughs) by saying he even. If I kept speaking to God, then I would assume, I, I guess I, I've counted on my being heard. One way of getting at it is, 
I'm curious, because there can be a certain satisfaction in prayer, and then I'm wondering if there are times you felt, because of the evidence of what happened around you, that my prayers are being answered, or I'm being led to un- to understanding, or whatever that might be, that, that there was some sort of connection that you had. Yes, and prayer was very important, um, and is still very important. It's a little different now. I can remember first experiencing prayer as that, gee, I'd really like this. <laughs> can you help me get out of this? Can you help <laughs> me get into this? And then as I grew more mature spiritually, the understanding of prayer, which is communication with God, not necessarily focused on wants, needs, but just that time together. And it can even be silence. And that's my form of my everyday practice, spiritual practice, is centering prayer, which is a form of silent prayer. And the contemplative, that silence, being in silence, and being able to be in a space that whether or not you feel heard, you just feel that you didn't, you weren't alone. You weren't alone. God's with you. God is with me when I'm doing my centering prayer. Whether or not I've got the Buddhist called monkey mind, or I used to call it jibber jabber, mm-hmm. going on, but the intent of consenting to God is there. What made you take the plunge and say, I'm not just going to help out here with this congregation, but I'm going to become part of a personal ministry to become part of the clergy? Um, it's a call that I've always had. Fought it off valiantly for years. <laughs> <laughs> Was able to distract myself. But when I look back, what's interesting is what I used to distract myself um, was service, and that is the deacon's call. <laughs> okay, I have to. I have to point out that there's some irony in saying God is calling me to to the ministry. I don't want to do that, so I'm going to throw myself into serving my fellow men. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> um, I think, it, and a lot of it was I didn't fully understand the ministries. Mm-hmm. So when I came to that point, that it was worth exploring because I was very happy being laity, and I was very good at what I did. I was in, um, I was on the vestry, which is a church governing board, and my became the senior warden, which is kind of like the president of a congregation. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that. I, I got a lot out of it. Um, I learned very quickly that um, doing that kind of work, you need the relationship with God. And it's the Martha Mary type. You can be a Martha, but there comes a point when you realize you've got to become Mary also. And as I... Not just fussing with the many, many details. Right. And so when I stopped to be Mary for a bit, I think that was probably the the hook <laughs> <laughs> that um, I just couldn't push away anymore because it just became so much more meaningful to understand what the call was and why I felt service was important. Was this a surprise to family, to friends? Not really. <laughs> I remember when... Uh, um, my godmother actually pointed out to my mother, you know, uh, you, do you know what she's doing? Yes. Is it a surprise to you? And my mother said, no, I, 
I'm not surprised by her going into ministry, ordained ministry. And so that was that was eye-opening, that um, it was something that I always felt called to do. And it might have been I didn't have the words for it or the shape of what it was. I have had many occupations, and nursing was one. Again, it's service. I found that I could sit with people and... I worked in an emergency room, so I was sitting with people in times of crises. Yes. And um, being able to stay there with them. And again, that didn't really click into ministry until I started chaplain training. In the Episcopal Church for ordained ministry, it's required to take a unit of clinical pastoral education because you are walking into crisis. It, it clicked that I can do this. I can walk into crisis. I can be with people. I can hear their story. Is it that you feel like you're prepared or that you feel like, well, I'm going with God? It's both. Um, God gives everybody gifts. We all have our gifts. And for me, there's also an expectation. Yes, you have this gift and you need to study to make it to be competent with your gift and to be able to really shine with your gift. So it just, I don't know, makes it easier and harder at the same time. I don't know if that makes sense. (laughs) I'm wondering what your favorite aspect of what you do as a deacon. You're serving under the bishop of the diocese, and you may at different times have different duties. But I'm wondering what are the things that bring you the most spiritual satisfaction? Oh, well, there are a couple that really come to mind. As a deacon, I serve at the table. I'm at the altar. And it's my joy to get to set the table. And the chalice arrives, and it's veiled. And um, I get to unveil it, put out all the silver, take the bread, put it on the paten, put the wine in the chalice and the, and the water. And there's just a joy being able to do that. And at the end of the service, I... I gather all, all the vessels and then hand them off. But it's, it's being at the altar, setting up for Eucharist, and, and also sharing the gospel. The deacon takes the word out into the congregation, and I get to read the gospel, which is another moment of joy and just connectedness with God and the congregation. Do you have a, a favorite passage or story or recitation? Well, I do, and I will connect it with, so that is my duty in the church, mm-hmm. which prepares me to, I work at the Food and Care Coalition the second Sunday of every month. St. Mary's provides the lunch for the, the residents and for those who wish to gather. So... I will not be at Sunday service that day. I go right to food and care. It's putting the apron on to prepare, and I go right to Jesus wrapping the towel around his waist to wash the the disciples' feet, Mm. the servant. And that is another joyful space. Things can be joyful and be difficult. So meeting some of the people who come can be kind of difficult. Some of them are in very sad situations, and they're in between spaces. So to be able to serve them, it's, it's a gift. Well, it sounds like the scriptural injunction. Yes. Yeah. 
you know, and, and then do this for the least of, you're doing it for me. And so that, and that makes it easy too, because sometimes it can be difficult to serve. Have you had a, a conscious period of, and maybe you always do it, of following that scripture you just alluded to and actively trying to see Christ in other people, those people you, as you serve them? Yes, and it's interesting. <laughs> uh, sometimes it's very easy, and sometimes it can be very difficult, I mean, especially if I'm taking it outside my usual realm. And then just that, that feeling that Jesus did this. God was with him, and he knew that. God's with you, so you're, you're okay. And, you know, breathe, stop, you know, all the pep talks. <laughs> <laughs> But is that something that gets better with time or easier to love people, even in perhaps unlovable moments? Can you get better at that over time? Um, I think you can show it better. I can remember walking into walking into church and just feeling this overwhelming joy and love for people and walking into food and care and just looking at everybody as they come in and just having this warm flow of love going through. I work as a chaplain in hospice, so a lot of times it's easier with just a person or a family walking in and just feeling this love towards people that I've never met and that sense that we're really in a sacred moment. Mm. At transition. Yes, and, and to hold that as holy. What do people look to you for in that moment? I mean, in some ways you're a stranger, but in some ways you're also probably uh, like an angel. Um, oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> um, and the stranger is interesting because I'm always thanking them and telling people how humbling it is to welcome the stranger in a time of life that can be very difficult, can be you want to close up more than open up to, to anybody. You know, it's, we want to kind of circle of wagons or, you know, we've got the stranger coming in and and asking us about, you know, some spiritual questions, you know, do you have support? And But often we connect, and I think it is because I go in with the love and they're open for, for it. Are there experiences in your life or stories about times when you felt God working in your life? Leading you or to correct stubbornness or, or a, a prayer that perhaps was long unanswered and you were felt like, you're laughing. Does this mean that something came to mind? <laughs> yeah, but I <laughs> – the cartoon where it's based on the footprints in the sand Oh, uh-huh. where there are the two and then there's the one in the cartoon that says, yes, and the, when I carried you and then that line is where I dragged you, kicking, kicking and screaming. Kicking and screaming. <laughs> So um, I do um, feel God at times coaxing Uh (laughs) or kind of pushing me in a direction that I would never, ever have considered. And chaplaincy is one of them. I mean, my my goal was to do one and run. I last 16 weeks, I'm good. And then to have this feeling that um, I am with you. This is what you're supposed to be doing. Hmm. And it's not easy. It sounds like you've sort of come around to, uh, okay, I see why you want me here. Yes. The challenges, the learning, the humbling, and recognizing that that's all God's work and that 
I'm supported in what I do, I'm being held. Hmm. Before I go into a family, I pray. I ask that I can show God's love and mercy, compassion and justice. And again, that is the role of the deacon, is to bring that out to the world. You're often with people when their loved one passes. You're there with them. If not that time, before then, I get to meet the family and spend time as they prepare for passing. Mm. Sometimes I am there with the family as the person is getting ready to transition. But this seemed like a holy moment. Oh, yes. Mm. And uh, it's a it's a miracle moment, too. Why do you say that? Uh, because we don't really know what goes on next. We might have ideas. We might have our beliefs. We have... Mm-hmm what we've been told, but we really don't know. (laughs) So it's just, you know, until it's our turn, all we can do is just watch and pray and hold the family in our hearts. If I could ask you, going back to uh, what you first saw in the vestments and the services and marking the liturgical year, which is the ceremonial round of the year and, and things repeating, do you have a favorite service? When you think, I cannot wait until this month or this week. Uh, It changed when I became clergy (laughs) because some of the most beautiful services, and they they still are beautiful, are a lot more work and more time intensive, more um, just more intensive to be present for that. and This sounds like enjoying Thanksgiving dinner as the grandkid who shows up or as the person who is doing all the cooking. Yes. That moment when I read the gospel Christmas Eve, mm. um, that is, it's, it's a joy. I just, and recognizing the significance for a lot of the people who came or come to hear it because it could be the only time they've been to church that year. And to hear this this beautiful story, um, and they want to hear it there. In they church want to hear because it there. they came, right? So, so that's kind of answering your questions. There are moments in most every service where I, I I'm excited. I think it's it's meaningful, and it can shift. I don't know what causes the shift, but it just does. It's it's like the liturgy. It's the same most every week, and sometimes a word or a phrase will just grab you. And it happens to everybody, reading Scripture or having somebody reading Scripture to you. And there's that, oh, wow, I've never felt that. I've never heard it like that before. And then there, what are you trying to say to me? What am I supposed to be paying attention to? I'm wondering what you make of the fact that there are so many people around the entire world who believe in God, and there's so many different approaches. Um. <laughs> This may be an impossible question to answer, but but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. It makes us all interesting. I think it shows that while we may have a concept of God, there is just way too much to God that we don't know, we can't grasp yet, or if we ever will be able to. But it brings more insight into God. Catch another glimpse of the back of God. But you do that by sort of comparing notes. Sort of comparing notes and letting and being able to sit with other people's concepts or um, their doctrine. And I think God is speaking to all of us. God wants us to know God. The same way isn't going to 
it's not going to be the same for everybody because look at all the advertisements. Look at the many brands of toothpaste we have. You know, <laughs> one different one will grab different people. So I think God reaches us, tries to reach us through various methods and ways that culturally we'll understand, maybe individually we'll understand better. Um, and for me, it's, it's love and mercy and compassion and justice towards each other. And as we do that, experience that, give it, receive it, it, it puts us more in touch, the divine. That's a beautiful place to end because I want that to linger in my mind, what you just said. Thank you, Reverend Deacon Sandra Jones, for coming in today and speaking with us in good faith. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll pay a visit to the Food and Care Coalition mentioned by Deacon Sandra Jones, and we'll listen in on our panel as they discuss the ideas she presented. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. Today I thought we'd pay a brief visit to the Food and Care Coalition. That's one of the places Deacon Sandra Jones mentioned in her interview. A place to connect with people and serve them. There are places like this in lots of communities, sponsored by a variety of church congregations and other community groups and clubs. Maybe your town has one. Maybe your town needs one. The first thing I notice about the Food and Care Coalition is that it's a busy place both staff and visitors, especially during lunch and dinner time. Today's volunteers include a group of high school young men from a local church group. They're helping serve the food, and a couple of them are playing piano and guitar for entertainment. Well, we were a grassroots community organization that were founded by some of the downtown churches. St. Mary's was one of those churches involved, and our mission obviously was to alleviate the needs and challenges of our homeless community here in the area. This is Brent Crane, executive director of the coalition. We have a very small but dedicated staff, and then we surround that small staff with educated, dedicated, and and resource-friendly volunteers that are made up of our student population, our retired community, you know, families, businesses, foundations, etc. So we have about 50,000 volunteer hours that are donated to our organization in many forms, whether it's serving a meal, making sack lunches, teaching a class, playing music during a dinner meal, offering their professional expertise, and so forth. I noticed as I walked in that a meal was being served, and it wasn't like a soup line. Yeah, we we intentionally, for the dignity of the environment, we hope that most people, when they come into our facility, sense that there's a different spirit here. And that was intentional. That was something that as an organization, as a board, as a director, we wanted our clientele and our community that were needy to feel that they were wanted and that they, we weren't going to marginalize them. And so it's a nice facility. It's a warm facility. It's a clean facility. We serve them restaurant style based out of just personal dignity. And there's a lot of the services and programs and little nuances to our program where we try to achieve that same end. 
Our web address is foodandcare.org, and uh, there's a wealth of information. I get a lot of students that ask, and a lot of interest from the you know the student community with various classes, and so it, it is very content heavy, but it's very easily navigated and has a lot of information. So we encourage people to check it out there, including success stories and all the services and programs. Our meal program, honestly, is like Christ feeding the five thousand. It was not his end goal to just feed people and have them walk away. He had a higher message that I think he wanted his followers and listeners to hear. Kind of in a similar table setting here, we offer services beyond just meals. It's kind of the gateway to other services. We have a barbershop here on site. We've got a medical clinic here on site. We've got mental health services here on site. We've got case management, transitional housing, We have about 12 to 15 partners that come in and do regular outreach. Community nursing from BYU is just here. Their students come in weekly during the fall and winter semesters. And then we have, you know, the VA that does regular outreach. DWS does regular outreach for employment. ESL, citizenship classes, you name it. There's there's a lot of activity usually going on. How many people are helped by the organization in the course of a year? Yeah, annually we serve anywhere between 2,500 to 3,500 unduplicated clients. Some of those are repeat day-to-day clients. Some clients that, you know, when I think back on the parable of the talents, you know, some receive one talent. And so our, we, we look at it from, you know, an opportunity of potential and self-worth, and and we try to help them magnify that talent. There's other people that come in, and they've got a myriad of talents. They're either hidden, buried, or not discovered, or forgotten about, right? Our job isn't to judge. Our job really is here to set the table, and then let the miracles happen, and we see it every day. We've got, you know, kind of a bunch of mother hens that come and regularly serve lunch, and they interact with our clients in a real positive and friendly and approachable way. Uh, You just never know where the miracle is going to happen. I just believe that the significance of the Food and Care Coalition is that we've set the table for that exchange and let nature take its natural course. And God permitting, people will change and have more meaning and fulfillment in life and purpose in life. For those that don't, we can, I think, as a community answer, a clean conscience that we've put our best foot forward as a community first. I can tell you some of the challenges that we're facing as a community and as an organization. Affordable housing is a big one. You know, our employment's doing well. Uh, many of our clients are finding employment, but they're finding marginal employment that's paying low wages that they can't afford to buy housing. And so affordable housing is something that we've got to address. And then I think just education. We're researching. BYU is a part of our research team right now in finding some curriculum that will be impactful for this population. But we see our three biggest goals and needs and service gaps going forward as enhancing employment opportunities for our clients, finding affordable housing, and giving them the educational resources where they can change their life perpetually moving forward. Have you ever felt a spiritual call to do something and then resisted? And how did things turn out if or when you finally gave in? Is reaching out to serve people beyond your immediate circle something you're comfortable with? We invited a group of people to listen to our guests and then respond. 
Celine S. Oates is a mother and a grandmother. She teaches people to create beautiful music on the cello, piano, and violin. Anne Graham is a wife, a mother of three, grandmother of ten. Though mostly retired, she's still a sociologist. Mark Burns works at BYU Broadcasting, where he hosts special collections. He loves to eat pizza, drink Coke, watch football, and listen to classical music. Ruth Eldridge Thomas is a professional organist and a religious historian. Well, this was a big surprise to me. Um, it turns out that Sandra and I used to work together at St. Mary's Episcopal Church. So I'm, I didn't know she was going to be our speaker today, but I'm delighted to be able to respond and kind of share some, some moments with her and about her. And in fact, I'm interested that she talked about how she kind of came to the ministry because I was working at St. Mary's when she had her training there. And then I left shortly after that for two years and then came back a few years later after she was kind of trained and and much more comfortable in her shoes, I think. So that part was really interesting to me and and particularly how she, she talked about her own kind of change from being, being a Martha and then becoming Mary, i.e. she was in kind of her lay life, she was seeing to the details and kind of sweeping in the corners and, and trying to keep everything together on a logistical level. And then as she became a deacon, she got to kind of stop worrying about the little details in life and then think about the the more spiritual aspects of the people's lives that she was serving. And maybe I'll start off with a little paradox because – when Stephen asked her about what part of her favorite part of becoming a deacon was, she said, well, I love setting the table, which to me seems like a very logistical kind of Martha thing to do. But when we, she started talking about or when she talked about setting the altar table, those kind of Martha activities or those like finicky little logistical activities then became sanctified or Mary activities. And so it's left me thinking, I wonder how our perspective on our tasks changes those tasks from something mundane to something spiritual. Yeah, that's a good question. And I was thinking of a related issue, and that is that uh, she mentioned at some point that all of the service that she was doing before she was ordained was kind of getting in the way of her call to a large Mm. degree. And I mean, obviously, service is a wonderful thing to do, but not if God wants you doing something else, you know, almost at the same time. Well, she was still doing lots of service. Yeah, Lots of service in that role and also service doing hospice. It isn't that she stopped serving. I think that she added the spiritual on to that. And it depends on the way you serve. I mean, you can do things because you're just busy, 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 busy. And then you can do things with thought and love. You know, I don't think service and listening to the gospel or teaching the gospel are necessarily distinct. And I think Christ, in making that example, was saying don't just get so involved in all the details and do the work and and have things going that you don't take care of the more spiritual part. And I've often thought with that example, what if Martha had gone on strike? 
<laughs> you know, once she stopped preparing the food and and doing the dishes, you know, maybe the three of them should have gotten in the kitchen, you know, <laughs> you know, because these are important things, but you shouldn't just get lost in those things. I, I have a mother-in-law who was busy, 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 busy. The way she coped with life was to fill her life up with doing good deeds, but also she was into the arts too. So, you know, that had a gold star on it as well. I think many times it got in the way of her thinking and feeling and and her spiritual development and her relationship to God. The only time I ever had good talks with her was when I came in the kitchen and did dishes with her and found out that she did take some spiritual time. There was a woman who'd really harmed her daughter psychologically. And um, a couple years later, she she was treating this woman well. And I said, how can you do that? I get mad, and she's not my daughter. And she said, you don't know the many, many, many hours I spent on my knees praying that I could forgive her. And of all the things that she did, that's the thing I most respected and loved her for. Um, Because forgiveness can be extremely, extremely hard, especially when something happens to one of your children. Anyway, back to Martha and Mary. She was a Martha. Well, I I think what you just said is actually germane to what we are talking about as well. Because there are kinds of spiritual work that are equivalent, perhaps, to doing the dishes and, you know, making the meal and such. And uh, just kind of getting by with grudges would be maybe the equivalent of that. But then that higher way of being when you pray for the ability to forgive someone seems to be uh, a kind of an analog to what Deacon Sandra went through as she, you know, became ordained and, and realized some of the spiritual, kind of the spirituality, the way that it infused the church ceremony that she'd been going to for years. Yeah, yeah. And she did the spiritual work to be able to discern that as well, right? She said that essentially she did her homework, you know, by being prepared to be able to find that when she went back to her church services as a minister. I found one of the interesting things she talked about that is is more prevalent in non-monotheistic religions, I think, or that's an overgeneralization, but the silence, the centering time, the silent prayer. For me, silence is difficult. I keep crowding my head with Martha things. (laughs) That is sometimes what's required, and it's not always easy. But I I felt her feelings, even as she was serving in many ways, and her mother recognized that she was a person who gave service and who cared about other people. But through that, she was feeling herself that she could talk to God. She had a relationship with a supreme being that she could feel guided by. She felt she, uh, she said, I counted on being heard, and prayer was very important to her. 
and the communication with God came not finally just because help, I need something, but because there was a space in which she knew she was not alone and that he was helping and guiding her. And she came to know that there were more things that she could do in her relationship with God. And yes, I mean, going to the food and care, going to these things, it's service that when people have to have food, they're doing very physical things that need to be done. But then they also came and she was able to give them a spiritual experience as they shared that love of God that she knew was there and felt that she was able to share. Selene, I love that you've brought out some of the things that she did and also some of the things she felt. And it's gotten me thinking, um, as with her prayer example, she I'm kind of interpreting this in my own way, but she narrated this way that her prayers started out as kind of transactional things and then became more personal or conversational or kind of an intrinsic to the way she was living. And during this whole interview that she's shared with us, there have been several things I noticed where she talked about things she did or things that she was required to do. So a deacon sets the table, a deacon unveils the chalice, a deacon, in her case, serves lunch for a population of people that are between spaces every second week. And in addition to that, these kind of physical labor or kind of checklist items, there's this larger sense of spirituality or this larger sense of things that she brings specifically to those pursuits or jobs that she does. And it makes me think in in my own church-going experience, I have responsibilities. I, I play the organ and I ring the Sunday school bell, or that's what I happen to do right now. And those are things that kind of are on a box that somebody asked me to do, and I said yes. And in addition to that, in in my own life, I've also found my own callings of things that I'm specifically gifted at, and those I kind of consider as important or more important than kind of the checkbox things. So one of the gifts that I've kind of realized that I have is that I'm really good at at, at sitting next to people who are in church for the first time or who are in a, a worship ritual for the first time and who might be uncomfortable. And I am really good at being that person to kind of help them feel comfortable or to answer questions that they're not sure they should even be asking. And um, I get emotional talking about it because I've had such a clear revelation from from God that that is one of my callings. That's one of the things that I'm I'm here at church is to, to do is to help people feel comfortable kind of mediating those first steps of a relationship with God. So I, I wonder what some of you think about that or if there's a, a confluence or a difference between the things that are like the ch- our checkbox things or things that we kind of feel called to do. I think that is just precious because I might cry (laughs) because I think that is the evidence that I think she felt there is a guidance that comes from God that lets you know that when you respond to that, not only is it a blessing to you, which for which you're very grateful and you can feel whether it's 
called inspiration or revelation, as you said, that there is someone up there that can give us feelings, directions to help us to bring light and comfort and peace to someone else as well. We can feel gratitude for those feelings in our own lives, but also feel very directed to help someone else. And and then that is really the great joy, that when you feel that someone else feels in any degree rewarded or grateful or happy because you have been there, that you've done something that brightens their situation in any way, whether it's on their way out of this life or whether it's along the path of keeping them alive with food. I believe that God really gives us a reward that way. When we try to reach out in love, which the commandments in the Gospels in the Bible are love the Lord thy God and love thy neighbor as thyself. And there is a great reward that he gives to us. And that's not maybe the way we set out to think that we're just doing it so we get that reward. But he does deeply reward us when we, when anyone else is given more joy, more light, more happiness, just more food, <laughs> what is needed. We always get more blessed than we give. And, and it's a thing that I think she has understood. She has felt that she knows she has been of service in important yeah. places. And that enriches her, as you, as you said, Celine. This is a conversation in good faith with a group of listeners sharing their thoughts on the first half of today's show with Deacon Sandra Jones. Find the full episode online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. Now back to the conversation. God often answers prayers through other people and um, probably less often directly. Service can bring mutual joy. And if in any way she has helped someone else to be able to find that themselves, yeah, then that's what God wants for every one of us. Anytime you really love, whether it's somebody close to you and your life is deeply entwined with theirs, it's hard. Things can be joyful and still be difficult. You suffer with them. It's often extremely frustrating because often you know what they should be doing, darn it. (laughs) Can't they see this is the right way to do things? Um, So it's hard, but it also can bring such joy that I cannot imagine getting in any other way. Um, We had hospice before my parents died, what was done by all those people, including the chaplain, was uplifting and um, extremely, extremely helpful. And, um, you know, my parents were in their 90s. They dated a little over five days apart, which says something about their relationship. And I agree with her that is an incredible time as you're going through the process of uh, leaving 
this existence. And um, I personally also got a lot of comfort in that time, a lot of spiritual comfort. You know, one of the kind of sad things in life for me is it's often during the really difficult times where I need to connect. I feel that peace and that love spiritually. And um, that's probably a personal problem. But I think it's also been given to me at times when I have most needed it. Mm. I'm trying to imagine what it's like for Sandra to be the person walking into somebody else's sensitive and vulnerable situation. When she says, um, it's joyful, but it's hard, I wonder if that's part of what she's saying is that she, and I think she alluded to this, um, kind of entering into somebody else's sacred space, whether it's in hospice like she does, or I've had experience in my profession um, helping people plan weddings and and funerals and kind of being part of that process as a complete outsider who they've never met before. So I can see maybe a little bit of of what she's done and what you're talking about, Anne. And I, I wonder if that kind of vulnerability and also deep care that that she has to have as the person who's stepping in from the outside is part of what's difficult. How do you gauge how somebody's going to feel about about a relative being at yeah. the brink of death? How are you going to gauge all of those relationships? Or even on a, a Sunday-to-Sunday basis, how do you gauge so quickly Who's walking in to the chapel that day? Who's walking to the altar rail to take communion that day? And there Sandra is as one of the representatives of of God or Christ or however that works. How must that feel as a mere mortal to kind of constantly be in these really sensitive situations? Yeah. I think it would be exhausting. <laughs> yeah, I, and really it's difficult. Be exhausting. But, yeah, but really rewarding, uh, like she said as well, just because you have the opportunity to be in a relationship of intimacy with another human being yeah. that's passing away. When people, I assume, would open themselves up in ways yeah. that they wouldn't otherwise. Yeah, I actually saw it as more valuable for the living, mainly because I. I was the one who was involved in it, help, helping me through the process. But it's got to be totally exhausting. Yeah, and you, Mark and Anne, you've brought me this other idea of there's sort of a ritual to parts of our lives that we don't recognize until we get there. Like I recently had a baby and I had no idea that there's sort of a ritual to having a baby that isn't prescribed by any clergy or really by my my culture. But there are things that you'll feel and go through as that kind of unfolds. And and I think that um, in my experience, death is similar in that sense, that there's sort of this process that happens, not that it's the same for everybody, but there's sort of emotional things that we go, landmarks that we go through, or as somebody is, is sort of transitioning, as Sandra said, that we go through, but we don't know what it's going to be until we get there. And often clergy comes in, again, in my experience, and I, and I think Sandra's talked about this a little bit, that clergy comes in as somebody to guide you through a process that you didn't know you needed guidance through. 
And again, I'm just struck by how how sacred that role is for somebody. And yeah. I think that she recognized that. I think she said consenting to God as she went into the clergy and to do these things, that there was a calling that she had to to be of service, to give of herself, and to try to fill these needs according to what God wanted her to do. And she responded to that and, and has tried to prepare herself more to try to give that higher service. But I just think of some experiences in my life in which things were taken away from me due to an accident. And yet, the fact that I can't drive anymore, but I am so grateful for every step that I can stand because I'm supposed to be a fatality, a quadriplegic. And I lost my husband and my sister-in-law. But there are things that would have been expected of me in this life (laughs) that I can't do because of my situation now. (laughs) Actually, in some ways, I'm grateful. (laughs) And I think that I have been given so much, and yet I had to learn. I mean, some days I said, I really don't want to learn anymore (laughs) because because of what I had to pay the price to learn. But I am I'm grateful. So, Celine, how do you get past those points when you say, I'm done learning? <laughs> how do you – what happens next? You keep learning. I was going to say, sometimes you don't have any choice over it, and but, you keep learning. I mean, you either learn or the alternative's a lot worse. I think that there is not a person on the face of the earth – that God does not know personally and love and is there for, but we each have our individual journeys and our place to find what he expects of us and what, and some people are trying to find out and some people are definitely not even interested in the least, it seems. <laughs> but I totally relate to her feelings Prayer had become very important to her, even more than just saying, I need help right now, but feeling that God was aware of her and had a work for her to do, work to which she has consented to God to become a part of what seemed the path for her to be best, to be part of the clergy, though she'd been happy being part of the laity, but she has found a relationship with God and and knew that the things that Martha had to do, that she had done taking care of some of the things that just simply have to be taken care of. But then she'd also found the level, which was with Mary, just listen to the Lord. Mary has chosen the better part, as Jesus said in the scripture. She has considered these things and really made some choices in her life to try to serve in the way she feels that God wants her to, and and I have great admiration. I think we all find a place in our lives where we make these choices of what where it will put us in our relationship with God and our fellow men. One thing that I thought was really interesting that relates to what you just said, uh, Celine, was 
the notion of discovering your calling or of somehow kind of figuring out over time what it is that God wants you to do. In the faith tradition I belong to, people have you do things, and we call those callings, but they ask you to. You know, the leader of the local congregation says, will you do this or that? Will you ring the bell at the end of Sunday school so everyone knows that it's over? And in this particular calling that she has, it's one that she needed to discover over time and then kind of give into and go ahead and, and take on the responsibility that God had been nudging her towards, it seems like, almost her, her entire life. And she clearly has been rewarded for having embraced that discovery and figured it out and, and now is able to have a closer relationship, it sounds like, with uh, deity than she ever would have had before. Yeah, and I love that when Sandra was talking about that, she talked about kind of that yielding or giving in to her calling and also the, her cultivation of her gifts in that way. I think she used the phrase, um, you get to become competent with your gift. What an interesting idea to have this duality of feeling called to something or having that kind of discovery process, like you said, Mark, and also really having to cultivate your competency in in fulfilling that calling that you that you have and it takes both of this kind of yielding gracious way of saying okay this is it and also this hard work of discovery and and of cultivating and work and and learning to be able to not only be in the right place but to have the right skills to be able to fulfill that need which you seem to have discovered in some degree as You've been willing to sit by someone who didn't feel so comfortable and help them to move into a comfortable space by relating to them. Yeah. And it, I, now that you say that, it makes me reflect on that. And I think part of that came by happenstance that I randomly ended up sitting next to people that that were new. That That part of it was not conscious for me at all. It just sort of happened. But... The, some of the tools that I have to help people in those situations come from abilities that I've cultivated over the time and also some of my difficult own difficult experiences about being the new person or feeling lost. So we kind of get back to what Sandra was talking about with the, there's there's joy and then there's difficulty. And in this case, through some of my own difficulties, I'm now able to to create or maybe co-create with with God some joy. And there's a great blessing of feeling that, especially when when you've brought a little light or happiness into someone else's life, and then you feel it yourself. We are rewarded by the God feels that happiness because he wants us to be happy. That's our time for today. Thanks to our panelists, and especially to Deacon Sandra Jones for generously sharing her stories and her faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds tell their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. I hope you found value in today's conversation. We welcome your thoughts and ideas about the show. Reach out to us anytime via email, ingoodfaith at byu.edu. Find all of our shows archived online to listen to or share with a friend. BYUradio.org slash ingoodfaith. And subscribe to the podcast in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode was produced with help from Christy Knuckleby and Marcus Smith. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon right here in good faith.